Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Danielle Ramirez interviews Dr. Philip Jenkins about trends in Christianity in the U.S. and the Global South, and how it gives us insight about Christianity on the global stage and here in the U.S. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Uh, muy buenos días y tardes a todos. Welcome to Open Plaza. My name is Dan Ramirez. I am an associate professor of American religions at Claremont Graduate University in Southern California. And I work on uh, religions of the Americas and uh, evangelical movements. And I am so thrilled to uh, have this conversation with uh, Philip Jenkins, who is a, a professor at a Baylor University, uh, a historian by training, but also whose work has gone far beyond the discipline. You may have heard of him, but let me just give you the two titles uh, that have really um, uh, cast a large um, shadow on several disciplines, and shadow in a good way. <laughs> uh, his 2002 book, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, Oxford University Press, and his 2006, The New Faces of Christianity, Believing in the Bible in the Global South, also by Oxford, uh, really uh, set uh, the mark and have been the subject of much conversation that continues uh, well, uh, almost two decades for the first one. So welcome, uh, Dr. Jenkins. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So good to be here. Dr. Jenkins, I was invited in 2010 to observe the centenary of the World Missionary Conference that was held in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1910. And uh, it was quite a thrilling experience for me coming from uh, my field of study and uh, also from a Pentecostal background to uh, have a moment to look back over a century to see what had become of that projected vision and voice of the missionary establishment uh, over a hundred years before and as uh, you've written about and others have written about, um, Edinburgh laid the groundwork for uh, what was to come in the 20th century, an ecumenical sensibility, lots of ecumenical projects, uh, and so forth. Uh, but then, of course, World War I hit and fragmented uh, uh, the, the churches. My question to you is, uh, what did they miss? in that gathering, because uh, we know that gathering took stock for the previous 100 years, mm -hmm. and then they projected forward for the next century. And of course, uh, there were some things already on the ground that were going on. For example, uh, a robust uh, faith missions movement that wasn't necessarily tied to the missionary agencies controlled by denominations. Uh, and certainly uh, they uh, maybe had heard whispers of something called the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in 1906. Uh, and uh, certainly perhaps uh, the biggest um, absentee was Latin America, mm -hmm, which sure. was excluded uh, owing to sensibilities. They didn't want to offend uh, Catholics into characterizing Latin America as a non-Christian uh, continent. Uh, and then certainly later in the uh, century, we had Vatican II on the Roman Catholic side, and then Lausanne in uh, 1974 on the evangelical side. Uh, so my first question to you then is, uh, would you agree that uh, it was, in spite of its importance, uh, they missed some 
things that you a century afterwards or 90 years afterwards began to flag for us? Sure. Oh, brother, that is uh, such a uh, such a sprawling question. So let me just hit two or three of the uh, main things. Uh, at Edinburgh, they were thinking of um, missions moving to uh, native, autonomous, grassroots uh, churches, but they vastly, vastly uh, understated the speed with which that would happen. And interestingly, war, the two world wars played such a part in that, in cutting off the missions and uh, in effect allowing the uh, or churches on the ground to grow very, very fast, especially in uh, Africa. I mean, I just give you one um, figure. In uh, Africa in 1900, there were 10 million Christians, 10% of the population. By 2000, there were 360 uh, mm -hmm. million, uh, almost half the population, which is the largest numerical change that has ever happened in any religion uh, anywhere. Uh, one thing that we don't often pay attention to is the sheer speed with which the uh, populations of the world grew in particular areas. You know, in 1910, the population of Mexico, for example, was what, about uh, 10 million. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, it, what is it now, 100 million probably. Um, uh, and so the, uh, the number of people living in uh, the global south was just uh, revolutionized. There were 100 million people living in uh, Africa at that point. There are probably, uh, what, about uh, a billion right now. Uh, those are incredible numbers. And so if you have, for example, half of a population Christian, and it's a few million, that's one population. If it's a few hundred million, then you're dealing with a much larger shift in that way. Obviously, what you say about the Pentecostal movement is so, uh, so critical. That is uh, such a fast growing uh, uh, phenomenon. But even the most prophetically moved people at Edinburgh, I don't think could begin to have contemplated the speed of what was happening. Things that they might have seen happening over three or four hundred years happened in uh, 40 or 50 years. And you try and avoid the word revolution if you can. But yeah, the 20th century was the time of a Christian revolution of astonishing speed. You mentioned the Pentecostal phenomenon, but Pentecostal and charismatic phenomena swept across all uh, branches of, uh, uh, of Christianity. So ju it just made it such an exciting time. So those are some of the main uh, things I would uh, highlight. Um, and you know we, we can talk more about the Latin American phenomenon uh, right now, but the way in which um, that a very kind of uh, uh, passionate, profound Christianity uh, swept the grassroots of the continent, particularly in the second half of the century. Well, uh, you uh, probably um, you should probably uh, let folks know that there are about 120 million Mexicans. Um, I, I do apologize to the 20 million I missed. <laughs> and, and the 30 million uh, 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 Mexican um, origin sure. uh, folks <laughs> here, here in the States. Um, yeah, they're, they're very sensitive about that. So I see, I see. Uh, but uh, so from a more sanguine uh, assessment, how did Edinburgh chart Christian relationships throughout the uh, 20th century, and did it kind of 
uh, opened the way for sustained, uh, what we now call ecumenical uh, dialogue. And how did the Catholic Church uh, step up to that? And then uh, finally, that sector of Protestantism called evangelicalism in Lausanne, uh, 1974, and thereafter. How did, how does that all play into uh, the mix? Uh, speaking optimistically. Uh, yes. Um... I think we sometimes make a mistake there. We look at uh, the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s and we think this represents uh, some sudden new uh, break with uh, mm. tradition. Um, things had been changing from much earlier. And again, I, I pay attention to the two wars. Uh, the, uh, the, the First World War and Second World War uh, created a great deal of um, grassroots fellowship within the, uh, uh, the armed forces, for example, in the mm. United States. Um, but the, uh, uh, the popes, I think, realized the um, uh, outreach they would need to the world uh, at that point. It's very much a, um, a two-sided uh, uh, picture. I'd give great credit to somebody like uh, Pope Benedict XV, Mm -hmm. um, uh, seeing the need um, for this, but um, you know, it, it was a slow process. The Catholic Church operates on a, uh, um, a, a long scale. Um, it, you know, just a figure I came across recently, it's not until the late 1940s that the Church considers allowing the use of biblical translations not based on the Vulgate. Mm. And so they're, they're missing really such a great deal of uh, biblical, uh, biblical scholarship. But uh, 1910, roundabout, coincidentally, does mark such a transition because it coincides with the First World War. And the more I look at the First World War, the more I see that as a, a key transition uh, point around the world in reshaping Catholicism, Protestantism, and of course, Orthodoxy. By the way, we often uh, forget yes. that. In 1910, there are three great branches of Christianity one of those branches comes close to total destruction in the 1920s with the Orthodox and the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, which uh, then reminds us of the uh, critical role of the revolutions. Uh, so we have the Mexican 1910 to 1917 yep. and the church-state conflict that that's going to set up sure. or, or reinforce. Uh, we have the Russian, uh, et cetera. Um, that also impinge, I think, on missionary strategies and uh, self-identities. But ironically, you point out that conflicts like the world wars allow for a type of indigenization right. of groups that are kind of left on their own. Yes. Uh, does that help to explain the later trends that we'll see uh, in, in the 20th century um, in Africa and uh, elsewhere? Very much so. Um, and, you know, you think of the First World War, the, uh, the Book of Revelation has a very good um, analysis of the things that go together, mm -hmm. famine, plague, death and war. Mm -hmm. And the end of the First World War is marked by these terrible um, plagues. Um, those plagues have a shattering effect on the mission churches across Africa and Asia, in that so many native Christian believers realize uh, that the missionaries are not going to help them, have no ability to help them fight influenza, uh, for example. Mm. And you get this upsurge of um, healing churches. And mm. very often that means great support for uh, uh, Pentecostalism. I mean, I do a lot of my work in, um, in West Africa. And so much of the uh, religious scene that you see in West Africa can be traced directly to 1918, 
uh, that, that it's one of these uh, pivotal years. The missionaries that are there, their only solution to influenza is have an aspirin, have some quinine, and that mm. will, will not. Um, white people, black people, and brown people all die alike. And that, that is a very powerful uh, lesson. Um, I, I would also mention one other uh, concept here, which is that of, um, of mobility. You mentioned these revolutions, you, uh, you mentioned these wars, how they drive people to other parts of the world where often they will pick up new religious ideas and bring them back to their home. You know, we mentioned the Mexican Revolution. Uh, by uh, the late 1920s, um, there are probably a million people of Mexican origin living in the United States, which is one tenth of the population mm -hmm. of Mexico. That's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and many of them go home. They take these ideas home with them. They take these Pentecostal ideas. Sometimes they take new approaches to Catholicism. Um, as, uh, uh, as I am telling the expert here, Christianity and migration are so intimately bound up. Well, I'm so glad you, you uh, got back, back to Mexico. Um, I do want to mention, I can really flesh that story out with the story of my paternal I, grandmother. Sure. <laughs> Uh, who uh, uh, is born in uh, the turn of the century, uh, lives through the revolution, and you're right, and not, not only did one of every 10 Mexicans end up elsewhere, uh, yeah. one out of every 10 died in the conflict. Yes, horrible, uh, horrible. So, uh, and then as soon as it's over, as you've mentioned, uh, the Spanish influenza, uh, the misnamed Spanish influenza, uh, just de devastated the countryside. And she lost her parents and her siblings and was left alone to care hmm. for three orphaned nephews and nieces who were adolescents. And she got them through uh, the following six years and fell in love, had a child, unfortunately, with a married man. And my uh, oldest uncle uh, was born. And then she took refuge in a cousin's uh, home. That cousin left for San Diego. Yes. And uh, met a uh, paisano from also from Guanajuato, who after 20 years of residence in the United States wanted to have, settle down and have a family and was told about my grandmother's plight. And she received a letter in the mail from this uh, paisano offering marriage and the money to get take the train from Silao, Guanajuato to um, uh, El Paso, Juarez. And they met on the bridge between the two countries, checked each other out, went and found a justice of the peace in Juarez and he introduced her into the country. Uh, also bringing her uh, two-year-old son uh, with her. And uh, my uncle's name was changed as they crossed the bridge. And it's now it's kind of uh, late for anything to be done about this since he's passed. But he left Mexico as Eusebio Castaneda and entered the United States as Eliseo Ramirez with Hilario Ramirez, giving him his last name. Nothing legal about that adoption on the bridge. Uh, my uncle in 1924 then I think was the first dreamer uh, sure. to, to come into the States and he lived a long life, flourished and uh, had a great story about uh, going back to your point about World War II and grassroots fellowship. Uh, he had a great story about uh, being uh, feeling discriminated against in the Philippines while they're in the invasion. And uh, he finds fellowship among black troops uh -huh. uh, who are holding a service and feed him. And because he was by this time uh, had been raised Pentecostal, uh, he felt uh, right at home there. But getting back to my grandmother, um, she then ends up in San Diego and uh, has to deal with the um, alcoholic machismo of her husband. 
And uh, then the Presbyterians arrive with uh, a new way of thinking and she embraces that. And then Pentecostalism arrives and she really embraces that and finds the power to break the chains uh, that had almost said, uh, terminated her family. And so then raised her sons to become uh, leaders in the uh, Apostolic Pentecostal movement. All this to say that the, 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 the epidemic and the revolution yeah. had already uprooted her in her mind. There was nothing yeah. to hold her down in her village when this new opportunity arose. Uh, and uh, the rest for us in our family is history, of course. Can um, I just add one very quick footnote yes. then? By the way, I hope that that, that, that is such a wonderful story. Uh, I am based in Waco uh, in Texas, mm -hmm. where of course there's a very substantial uh, Mexican community, uh, which traces its origin to the Cristero revolt yeah. and the exiles yeah. from that extreme bloodshed of the late 1920s. Uh, I, I, and that's another part of the story, which is really completely unknown to most uh, North Americans, but yes. is so critical. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, and folks just have to see the uh, For Greater Glory movie yes. uh, about 2010 or 11, I think it came out, to uh, get a good representation uh, of that. A, a bit biased, but uh, a, great, sure. a great movie uh, nonetheless. So when the uh, plagues uh, can only be answered by whatever resources folks can come up with, and the missionary establishment has failed in that instance, can we consider that uh, the limits of the Enlightenment um, and uh, folks recourse then to other resources uh, and that mainline missionaries had disdained uh, before then, especially out of the African independent churches. Uh, sure. uh, do you think then that there are moments when the enlightenment driven Protestant mission reaches its limits and sure. uh, populations reach for something else? Yeah, absolutely. That's so much of the story. And again, uh, you know, particularly in uh, in Africa and uh, but also in uh, uh, South Asia, and it gets to the question of the uh, uh, the causation of uh, evil. And if you have societies that believe strongly in the uh, power of um, ancestors, mm -hmm. and let let me say the word uh, in the power of witchcraft mm -hmm. and the power of witches, such a strong uh, mm -hmm. belief around the world. Um, and in some ways, uh, the uh, older, more traditional Catholic Church was better able to cope with this because it was familiar mm. with ideas of uh, exorcism. Uh, liberal Protestantism, of course, knew this was a, uh, mm -hmm. a foolish superstition from the past. Mm -hmm. And then the independents came along and the Pentecostals and said, no, uh, we, we believe very strongly in spiritual warfare. And moreover, that we can find um, excellent scriptural uh, warranty mm. for that. <laughs> And that, of course, is so much of the story of the uh, the late 20th century. So in a sense, you have two stories running together. One is what you very rightly call this, um, I suppose, the uh, uh, revenge of the pre-modern, mm -hmm. um, but also absolutely practical needs when you have hundreds of millions of people, billions of people uh, uprooted from the countryside where they have all their resources, they have all their connections and dropped in these deadly, dangerous, unhealthy cities where they have nothing except what they will find from each other, from those resources, from those communities and congregations. And it is the most uh, dedicated congregations, whatever they are, uh, that will win all the uh, numbers, whether they are Pentecostal, whether they're charismatic Catholic, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that is so much of the story of Latin American religion over the last 50 or 60 years. Yeah, yeah. 
So eight or nine decades uh, after Edinburgh, you were among those that noted a shift in the uh, <clears throat> seat of gravity mm -hmm. uh, in Christianity from the global north to the, to the global south. Uh, there were, of course, others who were also contributing to this um, in the different disciplines, um, sure. including missiology. Um, so for the benefits of those who aren't familiar uh, with your work, what brought you to that conclusion? And as you wrote, who was your audience and how responsive did you find the audience to be? And uh, this is a big question. What did you think would be the ramifications of the shift you were documenting and talking about? Okay. Um, like much of what I write, it begins when I get annoyed with an article in the New York Times. <laughs> and uh, the New York Times is a, an extremely secular publication. And at one point in the late 90s, they did an article that was trying to project the future of the world into the mid-century uh, when nation states crumbled and uh, when perhaps there could be some kind of transnational order uh, as an ideological system that would be a kind of, oh, like a new Christendom to, uh, uh, to revive that in the Middle Ages. And this being the New York Times, they thought this new religious system would be, and I quote, environmentalism with a new age twist. Well, uh, I have no. Aren't you aren't you supposed to interject here as as someone in Texas bless their hearts? Well, uh, we, <laughs> we we take that for granted. <laughs> okay. Uh, th there's also the good uh, Catholic phrase of invincible ignorance, which we also find uh, <laughs> helpful. Uh, and I happen to know the uh, population figures reasonably well at this point, and I wrote a book and said, well, yeah, uh, maybe there will be a. Uh, overarching religious system like a new Christendom but it's likely to be a real uh, Christendom mm -hmm. and the figures at this point were just so uh, astonishing you rightly mentioned the many other people who are working in this field uh, Dana, uh, Dana Robert, Andrew Walls, Lamin Sane I always say that uh, Andrew Walls is the uh, grandfather of us all in this, uh, uh, this regard and um, you've got to remember my book came out uh, not long after 9-11. In mm. fact, it went to the printer on September Ooh. the 10th, 2001, oh the last day of the old world. <laughs> uh, and I think people were very confused, obviously, and frightened after that. And some people saw Islam as being this great religious force sweeping the world. And I'm saying, well, no, Islam is extremely important. But if you want a religion that speaks to Africa and Asia and Latin America, it is, it is still very much Christianity. Uh, but Christianity of a very different kind from what we we might expect. I had what, what but the the best review I ever got of the book was from a very um, uh, wealthy and somewhat aristocratic lady in Washington D.C. And she said, "Oh, Mr. Jenkins, you've described this uh, great rise of Christianity. How there'll be these hundreds of millions of very passionate, very enthusiastic, spirit-filled Christians. As Americans, what can we do to stop this?" <laughs> and what, what I liked about her was she was absolutely right. She got mm -hmm. the the revolutionary quality. Mm -hmm. And let me break character and say a good word for the New York Times, I was very taken by how some of the mainstream media reached out to me and said, look, we don't understand this, can you help us? And I, I thought that was a, you know, a very 
wise mm -hmm. thing on their part. And uh, we had some useful dialogue. Uh, mm -hmm. But if what, what I did was not so much a, make an amazing discovery as to take things that were well known to specialists and put them together and, and, and synthesize them and uh, maybe introduce some, uh, uh, some vocabulary. And that, that's been my contribution, I think. Did you uh, find a different registers of reception, whether you were talking to, say, missiologists, uh, political scientists, uh, and sure. uh, depending on the disciplines? Yes, I, I think with a lot of the missiologists, their, their, their response um, for many was, well, you know, yeah, yes, of course, we know this in particular areas. Uh, but we've never really thought of it as a, you know, a, a one global uh, phenomenon. Um, it's interesting that for the next 10 or 15 years, um, by far the fastest growing section of the American Political Science Association, which is a fast organization, uh, was the section on religion and politics. And that was partly a post 9-11 thing, uh, but also people really discovered uh, Christianity as a, um, um, as a global force that was reflected in, um, in publishing. Um, so I, I think it's in the last 20 years that uh, global Christianity, world Christianity uh, has, been, um, has been put on the map and people realize this is a very useful thing. It's something they can't afford to ignore. They may not like it, but they cannot ignore it. Well, well, yeah. The, so, is is when you set up a section like that in the uh, Political Science Association, uh, is it seen as a problem to be studied versus as an opportunity to grab? Uh, yes, and yes. Uh, it, it, it is both, depending on who is um, who is doing it. But mm -hmm. you know, I I look at the public uh, the publishing world, academic publishing over the last. Uh, 20 years, it has been stunning. We have such excellent series now on the, uh, uh, the anthropology of mm -hmm. Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, just, just wonderful books. Um, so, so it's, uh, you know, it's a very uh, exciting time to be, uh, uh, to be studying this. Um, you certainly do get people who see this as, um, um, as a problem, um, but as I say, uh, it's inescapable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've just been involved in a project out of uh, Argentina and Mexico, uh, religions in the public square. Yeah. And um, I would say the tenor of uh, a few of my colleagues is still that. Um, and it's understandable in light of the Bolsonaro yeah. uh, regime in Brazil and other stories throughout Latin America. Um, my humble uh, contribution was on U.S. Hispanics in the public square, which we're going sure. to get to uh, in, in a minute. Uh, so, you, so you mentioned um, uh, the timing of the book, <laughs> um, and there was another uh, a couple couple of other folks who are thought of as uh, the people who put these theses forward. So, um, and when nine eleven happened, then Samuel Huntington, of course, was seen as his yeah. prescient thinker about the clash of civilizations and the danger that um, the West would face in mm -hmm. terms of uh, Islam. Um, notably, uh, about a half a decade later, he comes out with another thesis uh, about the Hispanic challenge. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't paint a very pretty picture right. uh, about um, the 
present and the future of uh, Latinos, especially since they're majority Mexican origin, they tend to concentrate, uh, according to him, they don't have the same indices of English language acquisition, um, education, et cetera, et cetera. So it's gonna be a drag on the body politic unless we cut off immigration and work on assimilating them as we assimilated Italians, Greeks, mm -hmm. and others in the previous century. Um, so I want to uh, fold that concern in to um, the application of your work to the United States. Mm -hmm. Sure. So when the global South shows up in our pews or in our rented spaces, yes. um, what are the challenges and what are the opportunities that American Christians and Christian leaders uh, should keep in mind? Hmm. Boy, um, I would, uh, I've made the argument that uh, uh, immigration and uh, uh, immigrant religion uh, are, are not uh, a facet of, if you like, the American uh, story. They are the American uh, story, mm. uh, that all uh, American religion, with the exception of Native American, uh, is, uh, is an immigrant story. It's a story of uh, progressive um, uh, accommodation, of uh, laying down roots, of dealing with people who are, uh, who are here uh, already. And I don't really see any fundamental difference between what is happening now as opposed to happen, uh, what happened 100 years ago. I think one of the most useful things American scholars today could do is look at the fate of those uh, American communities that came in between say 1880 and 1920 were met with exactly the same kind of um, skepticism, hostility, rejection, mm -hmm. and over a generation or so merged, uh, created a new, uh, 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 a, a new pattern. Um, one big difference, of course, these days is that there is a, uh, there's a much greater global uh, diversity. Um, and that creates an uh, incredibly uh, fruitful religious scene. Uh, you, you talk about Latin Americans, who, of course, are such a crucial part of that. Uh, I work a lot on uh, Africans. Uh, you know, yeah. um, Houston, Texas is the Nigerian capital of the United States. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is an absolute um, hothouse for the creation mm -hmm. of new denominations, new religions mm -hmm. who spread across the country. Um, I, I think we're living in a very exciting time um, in, um, in that way. Uh, as you say, it, it poses many issues for existing all-star congregations. What do they do? Uh, do they try and merge? Do they try and form a new, um, new kinds of relationship? Uh, or, or do they just kind of ignore them, go their own way, and uh, see what happens over time? Uh, and I think there will be a, um, a, a combination of those. The most important thing that happens in any immigrant church, of course, is the second generation, uh, which is when you get new people uh, who do not speak Korean or Chinese or Spanish um, and start forming uh, the, these very mm -hmm. kind of uh, regular, likely English-speaking uh, uh, congregations and have a lot of tension with their fathers and mothers and grandparents. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I certainly want to come back to sure. that. Um, but now let's let's um, go to a part of the world that very much impacts 
the situation we just talked about, and that's Latin America. Sure. Um, so uh, we've had, uh, at the same time as your work, we've had observers of Latin America like Daniel Levine, the political scientist, sure. David Martin, sociologist David Stoll, uh, anthropologist yep. and Andrew Chestnut, uh, sociologists, all <clears throat> given us uh, these very um, um, exciting takes on uh, the growth of religious diversity uh, and religious competition uh, mm -hmm. in, in Latin America. Uh, but not everybody is so biz, uh, um, benign in their assessment. And I have in mind uh, Jean-Pierre Bastian, mm -hmm. uh, who has written quite a bit on Protestant history in Latin America. And uh, he's, his uh, major book, of course, was on the contribution of Mexican Protestant leaders to the ideology and the organizing of the Mexican Revolution in 1910. Mm -hmm. So right. that's like the second generation of Mexican Protestant leadership. This is an amazing story where they carve out space with the revolutionary regime. Space sure. that Pentecostals are able to take advantage of as they come back from uh, California and Texas. Uh, however, uh, he wrote a very important uh, set of uh, writings where he characterizes Pentecostalism as a mutation of Protestantism. And it is not a uh, compliment. He's very concerned that they have given up historic uh, ties to liberal thought um, mm -hmm. and uh, they uh, don't offer as much uh, upward mobility as the historic missions did. And uh, over time, they revert back to a popular Catholicism, mm -hmm. trafficking in miracles and spirits, etc. And probably worst of all, um, uh, recreating the strongman politics of the hacienda, the rural hacienda. Now they're yeah. in the cities, and uh, La Livre Depene also the Chile, uh, the uh, uh, strikingly also a Swiss uh, scholar, mm -hmm. uh, but studying Chile in the 1960s, kind of came up with the same idea that these uh, Pentecostals are. Uh, are withdrawing into these sectarian enclaves uh, within cities and they are uh, absent from the great questions of uh, Chilean society as they speak in tongues and are in ecstatic worship uh, and uh, allowing their leaders to become caudillos, strongmen who mm -hmm. then broker mm -hmm. sure. arrangements with, uh, you know, in this case of Chile, uh, regimes that come in. Um, so uh, what is your take then, I guess, uh, on the scholarship on Latin America? Uh, have they given us uh, enough data to work with? What are the nuances they may be missing? <clears throat> what would you like to know more about? Boy, um, I have argued quite a lot against some of those very negative takes on, um, on Pentecostalism. No, you know, like, like, uh, like you, I can come up with any number of uh, uh, horror stories of uh, churches and leaders who are deeply disturbing or uh, or outright, uh, outright fraudulent. Um, but I think how some of those scholars you mentioned are defining the great issues of society is very misleading. Because if you are an ordinary, fairly poor person in one of those congregations, the great issues of life are, are maintaining the life of your uh, of your family of your immediate community, of uh, getting together to uh, fix the roads and preserve some, uh, some public uh, order uh, in the, uh, uh, the locality. And um, 
if somebody is not necessarily right now uh, uh, going out with some fully formed democratic ideology, well, um, uh, uh, that's fine. But in a decade or two, um, you or your children will. And I come back to David Martin, and he wrote that wonderful book called Tongues of Fire. And the whole point about Tongues of Fire uh, is that people who have never been allowed to talk, to speak out, go to these churches where they acquire the right to speak out um, in ways that from which they were absolutely disabled by their race, by their sex, by their, uh, their poverty. Um, and in years to come, those abilities then translate into a secular and political uh, realm. And, you know, uh, it's interesting looking at the background of some of these scholars that you, uh, uh, you talk about, whether you're talking about French or Swiss coming from a very secular background. David Martin, uh, like myself, and I'm not trying to put myself in his uh, very uh, esteemed league, come from an, a, a British historical background. And we have known this story very well from British history. What we see in Pentecostalism in Latin America today is what happens in Britain in the era of the Industrial Revolution. And today it's Pentecostals and then it's Methodists. Mm -hmm. And we know it's identical criticisms. And over the decades, the people who grow up through those Methodist uh, churches and congregations and the other small congregations go on to form and lead the unions. There's a famous quote that the uh, Labour Party in Britain uh, owes far more to Methodism than to Marx. It is a uh, it's a separate uh, tradition. So if you come from a British background, uh, you look at this and you have a great sense of déjà vu. But it's generally a very positive sense. Every word you say about how they're in these uh, enclaves, these bubbles, and they're so busy, you know, fighting demons, they can't deal with the, the great issues of the day. Well, if you're looking from the elite le level, yes. Uh, if you're looking from the grassroots, people are learning how to survive and cope in a radically changed urban and industrial world. Uh, they uh, are acquiring these resources, and in the process, they're living, they haven't got time to fight national revolutions because they're living daily revolutions, revolutions of, uh, of gender, revolutions of, this is the word that's so strange to Americans, of class, of class uh, 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 politics and uh, survival as a class. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't wait till uh, the Guild gets a hold of the work of uh, <clears throat> a new a generation of scholars from Chile, uh, Pentecostal, uh, people like Miguel Mancias and Luis Oriana have been going through the historical record and, yep. uh, and they have a completely different and very nuanced take on Chilean. Uh, canutos was the epithet used to talk about Chileans, like Aleluyas was for Mexicans, Canutos was for Chilenos. And uh, they really, they're really offering some fantastic work, uh, rethinking our old notions of these apolitical uh, sectarian enclaves. Sure. Um, so I highly recommend their work and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have it in English at some point. It's, it's curious you mentioned um, uh, British Methodism. Yep. I was trained in Methodist history with Russ Ritchie uh, at, at Tuke. And um, 
at the in the 1990s uh, there was an amazing project called the Obras de Wesley uh, that sought to translate the entire corpus of Wesley into Spanish and the main editor was Justo Gonzalez the story the historian and uh, I had used that material in uh, courses of study at Southern Methodist University and elsewhere and it is so amazing to see the response of current Latino Methodist pastors from Latin America who often come Pentecostalized. Yeah. And they read Wesley and they say, he's one of us. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, but then I think, because then I'm also familiar with the, uh, the literature on early Methodist training in the Southwest and in Latin America, the courses of study they gave their preachers and uh, I would say that by the uh, early 20th century, perhaps a tenth of the Wesley Corpus was translated into Spanish. Huh. Which makes me think then that Latin American Spanish-speaking Methodism hobbled through the 20th century on just one foot. Yeah, absolutely. And it is only at the late 20th century, the early 21st century, that all of Wesley is available Right. and explains its resonance with Pentecostals on their way to becoming mainline or something. Uh, but they find in Wesley this, uh, this rich uh, resource. And I think we're going to see uh, quite a few ramifications about that. Let's um, can stay with uh, Latin America. Um, how captive do you think the guild is to presentism when it comes to studying Pentecostalism? Um, so I was uh, going through the 2016 Congress of Panama records of the, Christ of the Committee for Cooperation in Latin America, which is that group that comes out of Edinburgh and mm -hmm. insists we're going to gather and talk about Latin America. And so they, their first the big meeting is in Panama in 1916. Of course, uh, the ones in Mexico have met in Cincinnati in 1914 during the revolution. Wow. And came up with these comity agreements where they would car, you know, they would they would, uh, in the interest of economies of scale, trade territories with each other. Right. Uh, they had tried that out in Puerto Rico before that, but in Panama, uh, there are the Literature Commission is the only one led by a Latin American, by mm -hmm. the Mexican Methodist uh, Moisés Osuna, and uh, they give a report about scripture translation mm -hmm. and dis Bible distribution by the American Bible Society and the British and Foreign Bible Society. And they're wonderful. I mean, it's just the, the work of those groups is so impressive. Right. And then they uh, have a big discussion about the problem of hymnody mm. and how the um, translations are clumsy because they're usually done by missionaries whose first language is not Spanish. Right. And they're desperate for the work of uh, native Latin Americans to give. And by this time you do have several emerging like um, Vicente Mendoza of Mexico, who is an amazing translator and also original composer. Uh, but uh, there are really, there's some really a harsh introspection that goes on uh, because they're worried that uh, it's, it's not catching fire. And, uh, and what do we do about it? Well, ironically, they had the answer in front of them on the conference table because they had just talked about the Reina y Valera Bible, right. which is the great, 16th century sure. Spanish translation of two dissident monks who became early Protestant leaders, Castillo de Reina and Cipriano Valera. 
And at that point, at that time, the Reina Valera Bible is falling into the hands of Pentecostals. Hmm. And they love the text. And it's considered even by Catholic scholars to be this crown jewel yep. of the golden era of Spanish letters, or, you know, in the same league with Cervantes and the rest, right? So what do uh, Mexican Pentecostal uh, peasants do? They pick up their guitar and they check out Psalms 137 or 117 and then start to strum uh, alabada Jehová, naciones todas, pueblos todos, alabadle. And they musicalize mm -hmm. the classic Spanish of Reina y Valera. So there's no longer any problem about clumsy translation. Right, I mean, right, right. This, this is pristine, you know, uh, classic Spanish. And they musicalize it, of course, with all the musical genres uh, that they know, polka, ballads, uh, wapangos, etc. Yeah, yeah. And so I would argue that the genius of early Pentecostalism in the Spanish-speaking world is finding that resource. Um, so that then takes me to the other question of the historical consciousness. Should... Uh, in order to counter the argument that they are Johnny-come-latelys, should uh, Spanish-speaking Pentecostals root themselves in that deeper Iberian history of the Reformation in Espanol in the 1500s? Uh, would that help in terms of uh, consciousness and, and identity framing that, no, we are not brown Methodists, we are not brown uh, Presbyterians, we had a reformation. Mm. Of course, it was uprooted by the Inquisition, but uh, and it had to go dormant for a couple of centuries. Mm. But the text that drives us, and the text that we have musicalized that is now in the, the marrow of Evangelicos, uh, comes from the same, matter of fact, it predates King James by about nine years. Sure. Uh, if not, it, even earlier than that, if you go with just uh, uh, Reina's translation of the Bear Bible of 1569. Uh, so just your thoughts about um, the possibilities for anchoring uh, evangelical and especially Pentecostal identity in uh, deeper soil. Yep. Oh my, uh, what, what, what I hate about listening to you is you, you raise about 20 things uh, on which uh, I could answer. You know, um, I'll say something which uh, strikes me, and uh, if, if this sounds critical, I, I will qualify it. Whenever I deal with Pentecostals, it seems to me that so many of them have got a very simple history, uh, which is that of the Book of Acts, and that then resumes possibly in 1970 or 1980, <laughs> and there aren't too many stopping points in between. It's true of evangelicals, but the revival date is 1949 and Billy Graham. Right. Um, I, and the most uh, Pentecostals that I deal with do not care so much uh, uh, about that history, and they might have what may be a mythical history of where the church goes in the meantime, and they may find this precursor and that precursor, but it does not matter. The history is the Bible, um, and the uh, Reina Valera uh, uh, translation might, might be wonderful, but it is not something that is a product of 1602. It is a product of 90 AD. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you may think I am being uh, unfair or oversimple there, but, but that is similar to what I... Uh, I'm, 
it might be that that kind of historicizing that you are talking about is that for the next generation that at the moment uh, this is just such this uh, absolutely explosive uh, period of uh, uh, growth and just putting the Bible in those different forms. Let me just go uh, off in one little direction uh, right now. My present book um, is on the influence of Psalm 91 through history. Mm. And I have a chapter right now. It, it was originally a line, then it became a paragraph, then it's a chapter on Psalm 91 in Brazilian Christianity. <laughs> and it is possible, for example, you, you say something which is so important, which is how music is so much the principal form of, uh, of evangelization, of proselytization. That was true in Puritans in, uh, in Britain yes. back in the 1630s. And it is so true today. I don't care what kind of music uh, you like. I can guarantee there's a version of Psalm 91 for you in um, in Brazil, also in some other countries, uh, in the the legendary um, Brazilian gospel group is called uh, Diante do Trono, before the throne, that has spun off so many other uh, groups. They have this wonderful uh, Psalm 91. I can find you a rap version. I can find you a heavy metal version. Uh, they're all there, and it's what people sing. And what is the other way that people communicate at ordinary level? They use graffiti. Uh, mm. Psalm 91 is in graffiti, it's in tattoos, <laughs> it's absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but um, think about it, different forms of uh, communicating the message. There are tracts, there are books, but it's what we hear and what we sing and what we see around us that we internalize. Uh, so um, when you told that story about uh, the uh, the Mexicans applying these forms of music, I, I just uh, shook my head and say, uh, yes, yet again, that that is, dare I say, uh, the heart of the matter. In Britain, uh, for example, people introduced the Bible in English, and 80 years later, they learned to sing it. And that is the point at which you get the mass conversions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's the story that we uh, we see in uh, we see in Latin America. And um, as I say, if you look at the story of uh, Pentecostalism, Evangelicalism in uh, in Brazil, uh, to take something I'm studying right now, that is the story. It's when people sing it that they start to believe it. And the singing also uh, helps the memorization process. Of course which also requires uh, generational transfer. This is how the melody goes, because often they're not scored. Uh, often they, uh, they aren't. I, I know one story in uh, the Sudan um, in, uh, uh, in Africa, where an Anglican scholar offered to help local people um, write down their, uh, their corpus of hymns. And local bishops said, oh, this would be wonderful. By my estimate, we have about 8,000 presently. <laughs> none of which uh, are written but um, you can write the history of east african christianity for example through one hymn there's one hymn called the tukutin that is a yesu which if you look at the words it's a very straightforward evangelical hymn the blood of jesus the blood of jesus saves me it is the song of martyrs it is the song your mother told you if you stand at a, uh, a bus stop in East Africa and start humming the song, 
everyone will join in. I literally mean that. When you get on the bus, the bus yeah. driver will join in. Yes, yes. I've, I've seen uh, occasions like that in Mexico, uh, right. where there's a shared uh, hymnody of choruses, especially between Catholics and Protestants. Right. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. I have it on tape. Uh, I'm going to do something here that has probably never been done on an open plaza <laughs> podcast. I am going to share with you a musicalized version of Psalms 91, ah. Salmo 91, laid down in tracks in 1965 by none other than my late father, Luis Ramirez. Ah, wonderful. And, and I'm I, I'm picking it up here on YouTube because it, it's it's been uploaded by folks, uh, and it really uh, became uh, resonant over the last year as folks found in Psalms 91 the language about the virus the disease, and right? plague. Ah, oh my God! It resonated with folks, and lots of them uh, took to listen to it again. I'm going to play it here for you for just a few uh, fragments, and we'll let the editors decide what to do with it. Okay, here Bless we go. You. <laughs> Al abrigo del Altísimo Mora Baja la sombra del omnipotente Dice ya Jehová Esperanza mía, castillo mío, mi Dios, en él confiaré. Y él te librará del lazo del cazador. De la peste destruidora, con sus plumas te cubrirá. Y debajo de sus alas se Wonderful. Well, that was my daddy. <laughs> Let me just tell you a story. Um, this psalm, and as I say, I could talk about this all day. Um, it has an incredible story in Latin America that no one's ever really got into. When the Jesuits arrived in the 16th and 17th century, they turned to the verses uh, about, I will trample the serpent and the lion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and they see that as a way of defeating pagan uh, forces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the great uh, Jesuit uh, missionaries, there's a man called Antonio Ruiz de Montoya, uh, who evangelizes the Amazon. And he always uses that against uh, pagan gods and native uh, shamans and so on. So Psalm 91, it, it's, it's not exactly an anthem of Latin American Christianity, but it has its, uh, its claims. And you're saying the most important thing of all here, which is if you try and write the history of any aspect of Christianity without looking at what is sung, then you're missing the heart of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's... Um... I want to bring it home now, literally to bring it home <laughs> um, and 
think about what the global south presence in the united states uh challenges us or how it challenges us um and have in mind for example the undocumented pentecostal farm worker from oaxaca mm -hmm. in salinas california yep. uh barely survived in the the uh panic and um trying to keep uh the family uh, afloat in, in southern Mexico, or the Pentecostal Honduran mother trying to get her daughter to join her in New Jersey today and using all means available, which includes illegal means. And uh, to think about their, uh, what hopes do we have of their inclusion as citizens and not merely scapegoated denizens? Um, that's the global South showing up here mm, sure. and uh ironically a lot of the their co-religionists um who are now who have bought into an idea as settlers in american zion and the american way of life of course have bought into xenophobic uh discourse about um, their fellow believers um and they're often criminalized and painted as lawbreakers etc um and on the catholic side um a cardinal no longer has uh a a hotline to a kennedy family uh because uh for whatever reasons wherever the kennedys have ended up uh but uh mrs gonzalez and her six children who are there now in the pew and maybe in a niche praying to St. Toribio Romo for their, their immigration circumstances are not going to be able to deploy the same social capital on behalf of the Catholic Church uh, in the in the broader uh, in the broader world. So, um, is this showing up of the global South an empowering thing for the American Church, or uh, is it a disempowering thing? And does that disempowerment align with what Pope Francis? has called the church to. Mm. You know, you, you ask, is it an empowering thing from the Roman Catholic perspective? It's not empowering, it's a survival mm. thing. Were it not for especially Latinos, but also uh, Asian Americans, um, I know what the Roman Catholic Church in the United States uh, would look like right now. And it would look like the oldest and uh, demographically the weakest and most fading of the Protestant mainline churches. The reason they have the, uh, the numbers, the existence they do, uh, is due to that, uh, uh, that immigrant um, phenomenon, especially Latino. Uh, so, so it's a basic survival issue and will become uh, uh, ever, uh, ever more so. Um, you know, I there's a very ambiguous attitude among uh, American, and you're obviously thinking of, you know, white American evangelicals and so on. It's a very um, ambiguous attitude. You know, I, uh, I live in Texas, and uh, um, th th there is, if you like, an intellectual awareness that there is this danger out there called illegal immigration. There are these terrible people coming uh, to the country. Um, but people generally do not attach that label to the, the folks next to them. You know, the, these are perfectly good neighbors, and although they might be undocumented, 
that they, they, they are not part of the problem. So it's something that you um, you imagine, unlike in the case of Muslims, where people just do not know. Uh, ordinary Christians do not know Muslims on a daily basis. They do know Latinos and regard them as absolutely part of the, you know, the very, very familiar, very accepted landscape. So it, it's uh, it, it's an ambiguous uh, attitude. Intellectually, it might be there's a terrible problem out there, but it's not applied to these ordinary people you are next to in the mall. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a strange one, or indeed uh, uh, in the church. But do they regard them as equal shapers of the future and the present and future of the church? So I'm thinking of, for example, um, just what, what the symbolic message is when you have a, uh, a large white congregation renting to uh, or sponsoring a Latino congregation that is probably meeting in the fellowship hall mm -hmm. and that is probably not represented in the governance of the main right. church, but yep. who may be seen as a rental revenue stream. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The church's finances. Uh, and so is there a paternalism that's still evident uh, in the treatment of Latin American and Latino uh, co-religionists? I think you're, uh, you're absolutely right. And there is also uh, a, what can I say? Um, an imperial uh, assumption about the absolute hegemony of uh, English as the real language. Let's see. So then, so then, uh, so that process you described about the second generation being key yeah. over time will disempower the Latino congregation if they follow the same marriage patterns, the exogamous marriage patterns. Mm -hmm. and to seek to accommodate themselves to uh, to cross the tracks there in in their own setting to a white uh, uh or rather an english uh, dominant um setting um what, what's what's what is is there any prophetic future in keeping the doors open for a, a inter multi-generational spanish-speaking congregation uh this just gets into so many issues that I, uh, I want to discuss. You know, you use a very interesting word there. You use the word uh, white. I think one of the most interesting things that's going to happen in the United States in the next 20 or 30 years, the word uh, white, whiteness, is something that has been applied to different groups. It's been expanded. I am seeing it right now uh, being expanded to Latinos and in, in surprising ways even to East Asians as they are seen uh, uh, as part of the kind of uh, upwardly mobile and, um, uh, and more privileged. It's almost as if whiteness applies to them. Um, I'm interested by the number of people of Latino origin in the United States who presently describe themselves as white and are uh, uh, understood as white. As that white label expands, um, so we'll still be talking about white churches in 2040, uh, uh, but so many of them will be of Latino uh, descent. So that white thing is a, is a very complex uh, point. You know, in, um, there's a wonderful book on this topic. Uh, it's called How the Irish Became White. In 1850, the Irish are not white. In, in 1900, the Poles are not white. Uh, by 1950, they're all white. Mm -hmm. Whiteness is a very sort of relative, uh, debatable category. And I'm seeing it right now um, in terms of uh, the number of white Latino people. So it's, it's an interesting one. 
uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that uh, if you like Spanish speaking, you know, congregations would um, be, uh, uh, what shall I say, um, uh, ruled out of acceptable society because of the, uh, the language, but where that second generation uh, is constantly, uh, is speaking English anyway, um, the, the fight of preserving the, uh, the Spanish, except as some kind of very conscious sense of antiquarian heritage, is going to become more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I know we're getting into very kind of contentious areas there, mm -hmm. but uh, if, if you ask difficult questions, you must expect difficult answers. Yes, yes. And uh, there's another book I would add to the discussion. That's Laura Gomez's uh, Manifest Destinies, where she documents Wonderful. Uh, the, the fight uh, for the uh, Caucasian label. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and uh, that played out in my family. My sister and I went to go get our birth certificates uh, from San Diego about uh, 10 years ago. And we found out that we had different parents. Mine were uh, Caucasian and my older sisters were Mexican. Um, but it was just the, the way a doctor had, had written uh, the birth certificate down. I, I'm just um, going to tell you a, a one-liner about that Mexican uh, generation in San Diego. Um, when they, uh, many of them arrived in the 1920s, they were greeted by a major demonstration of the Ku Klux Klan, which would ride through the area against these terrible immigrants. And the locals never heard of the Ku Klux Klan. So they thought, well, first of all, um, these people, and they'd come from the Cristero uh, uh, Wars, these people must be very brave Christians because they're carrying crosses. And they must be very pious Catholics because they're wearing penitente hoods. So the, uh, the, the local <laughs> Mexican people went out to cheer them until the following day, the clan had to turn up and explain that we're actually bigots and we hate you. Oh, we're very sorry, sir. We misunderstood. <laughs> and this is a true story. Oh, um, so let's uh, move back out to the global picture. Yes. And so those who have discussed the... Uh, World Christianity now, that's another uh, approach. Um, seem to be um, uh, now moving beyond uh, a long overdue focus on particular stories and regions. And now they're looking for the networks and the connections, sure. even global south to global south. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and I'm gonna stick with music here. Um, uh, that song that you heard my father sing comes out of the particular Mexican-American, Mexican apostolic yeah. experience, and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, but there is a new global phenomenon that seems to be suffocating all of the particularities uh, yes. in, in uh, musical production and expression. And you know who I'm talking about, right? From Australia. Yeah. Uh, sure. And they, they call it il song in Spanish. <laughs> uh, but uh, it seems to be crowding out Andean, uh, uh, Mexican regional, uh, yeah. Colombian, uh, Vallenata, uh, Argentine tango, all of these expressions that we thought we were going to hear around the throne someday. But apparently everybody's going to be singing off of the hill song. Uh, play uh, songbook. Uh, any 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 thoughts about uh, globalization's uh, suffocating effects? Absolutely, um, and no, you're you're obviously right about uh, Hillsong. Uh, 
but generically um, contemporary Christian music, CCM. Um, you know, uh, uh, Nigeria, for example, has got uh, uh, wonderful traditions of uh, Christian music growing on um, native, uh, uh, native rooted uh, traditions. And in the last few years, so much as that has been taken over uh, by um, songs that uh, break into the uh, American gospel charts because they sound just like everything else. Um, it's uh, it's extremely sad. I don't know how to um, uh, uh, how to prevent it. It's almost as if every decade or so, local churches need to come back with some sort of authentic explosion. And if I can use the analogy, uh, uh, something like punk and secular music, which reverts to these very sort of basic uh, grassroots traditions. Um, and rebels against those um, very glossy, uh, generic uh, uh, ideas. Um, but uh, it's also true, by the way, that the, uh, the influences do work both ways. In um, architecture, for example, you see uh, African megachurches, which are based on American megachurches, and then American congregations imitate the African megachurches. So, and I, I don't think there's any way um, around this, but yes, uh, when you mention Hillsong and no offense to their musical skills, I do groan. <laughs> well, uh, just, uh, I guess the concern is that the increased presence of the global South uh, or their, their eclipsing of the global North perhaps, in their region, and then their 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 increased presence in the global north um, doesn't necessarily translate into um, authority. Uh, mm -hmm. They may be seen as the best uh, musical performers. Right. Uh, now I'm talking about global south people, right? Uh, but the authoritative theological voice that's articulated in the music and in the theology and in the preaching of most mega churches remains Anglo. Uh, sure. And um, how do we get from the, uh, the, the increased presence right. to the leadership yeah. and to shaping the future? You know, uh, I, I would quibble with that in um, one way, which is um, I see so much drift from the South to the North. And I look at some of the most powerful um, evangelical and charismatic trends within Global North congregations, including Anglican churches. Um, and you see one theme so often, which is people who have worked as missionaries, especially in Latin America, bringing back some ideas. So for example, in uh, Anglican churches in uh, Britain, there's been a great move to uh, basically spiritual warfare ideas. And in every case, the key people are those who have uh, lived with the uh, Chilean Pentecostal revival, they've uh, lived as uh, missionaries. Uh, you look at a lot of uh, Pentecostal churches in the, uh, the US, the ones that are usually described as the new apostolic reformation. Uh, you may agree, you may disagree with particular things about those churches, um, but the leaders and the key movers have experience in those mission fields. Uh, see Peter Wagner, one of the key figures mm -hmm. there, I think was a missionary for many years in Bolivia. 
Right. So they know what they have seen in those countries and they are bringing back those ideas. So I absolutely take your point about the, you know, the theology, the rhetoric, the worship style being uh, being Anglo, uh, but it's um, it's not a one way transaction. There is that feedback, which I think yes. is underappreciated. Funny you should mention Peter Wagner. Yep. Um, I've uh, try to understand his uh, trajectory, especially uh, the beginnings at uh, Fuller Seminary, along with Donald McGavern and the whole church growth right. school. And um, McGavern was very good at bringing in, and uh, Ralph Winter as well, bringing in students from the global south. Yeah. Um, I think Emmanuel Gaxiola from Mexico, among others. And uh, if you look at the archives in Fuller, you will see that these students brought a lot of information for, with them. They were mature church leaders in, from right. the global south. And they, were, they allowed McGavern especially, uh, and, and, and Peter, I love Peter's, uh, Wagner's uh, first title, right? Look out, the Pentecostals are coming. Right, right. Um, but uh, this allowed these thinkers to fashion something called church growth theory. Yep. That then got exported, I mean, it was read widely, and then got exported to Latin America yep. as Igle Crecimiento. Mm -hmm. And it's read as this novel thing that they're going to implement on the ground, when in fact, the raw data came yep. from their neighborhoods. Right, and, exactly. And, and for thing. me, it, it, it's like um, Mexicanos uh, enjoying Swiss chocolate. <laughs> that has been extracted from their region, refined and, and sold back to them at a much higher price. Right. Um, and I think those processes of inequitable global production of knowledge yep. uh, need to be also called out uh, as we, uh, as a guild, welcome uh, more voices. And, um, and the same thing's true with the Apostolic Reformation. Uh, lots of the, uh, the Initial, initial protagonist were Latin American, uh, but the, theor the theorists um, weren't necessarily, and uh, they, got, they got all the credit. And you can't talk about Toronto Vineyard without thinking about precursors uh, from, from Latin America. Well, Dr. Jenkins, this has been such a wonderful opportunity uh, to uh, explore these topics with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Uh, we'll leave the question about what the COVID moment means in terms ah. of, uh, of all of these trends for another conversation. We'll just lay it, leave it on the table there, but uh, I invite any, invite any last words from you to our, to our audience. No, uh, I'm just very struck that, uh, you know, we, we, I think we're on exactly the same wavelength in the uh, issues that we're uh, stressing and that um, if, a, uh, if a religion cannot be sung properly, it is not worth pursuing. Amen. Amen to that. Muchas gracias, Dr. Jenkins, and um, be well. Thank you so much. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.